This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Hello and welcome to another edition of Workers' Comp Matters on the Legal Talk Network. My name is Judd Pierce. I am here with my co-host and founder of this show, Alan Pierce. Hey, Judd. How are you? Our guest, Ginny. Nice to meet you. Yes, we have a a special guest today, too. Ginny Moeller is is here with us. Just by way of background, uh, Ginny is a director, a writer. She probably has a lot of other credits to her name, and I'll I'll let her get into that briefly. Um, Ginny, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. One of the reasons we wanted to reach out to you was because of the subject matter of the film that came about and launched on, uh, it's now widely seen on Netflix. It's called Radium Girls. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came upon this subject and where it brought you? Yeah, absolutely. So Radium Girls is a film. It's now on Netflix. It's a project I co-directed with Lydia Dean Pilcher, who also produced. She produced with Emily McAvoy, and I wrote the film with Brittany Shaw. It was a labor of love for many years, and it was actually nine years ago that I stumbled across the story of the Radium Girls when I was working as a production assistant and a, and a researcher on a documentary about the Manhattan Project. I was reading a biography. I thought it was actually in the section about health insurance for project workers on the Manhattan Project, which, of course, connects to workers' comp. And they said, as they were considering how to structure that and what safety measures to put in place, they said they all remembered the tragic dial painters of the First World War. And at that time, I had never heard of a dial painter. I I didn't know what tragedy had happened to them. I didn't know how it connected to the First World War. And so I, I just Googled tragic dial painters World War I and found myself on a Wikipedia page called Radium Girls. And I just I couldn't believe the story that I was reading. And for our listeners out there, this is really the story of the history of occupational diseases in Massachusetts. And more importantly, how the law did not protect victims of occupational diseases. In fact, at the time of the Radium Girls story, occupational diseases were not even covered under what we had then as a very new workers' compensation law, which really began right after the turn of the century, around 1910, 1911, 1912. So the Radium Girls is the story of these girls who primarily, I guess, uh, were painting the dials on, on watches and clocks with the paint that glows in the dark. And they got sick. And the story of how these dots were connected is the story of Radium Girls. So this is really a story for occupational health professionals, for those of us who represent injured workers in general. And Ginny, perhaps you can flesh out once you you know, were captivated by this story, tell us what that story was and, and why it was so interesting to you. Well, you know, one of the first things that jumped out was that this was happening to teenage girls, to young women, that this is happening in the 1920s. And it was not, I mean, you know, occupational health and safety is not something that was, it's not a field I was really aware of. I went to film school. I studied comparative literature here and there. I studied physics, but suddenly understanding that there was, there was this side to the roaring twenties that I had never thought about. 
And of course, it's not the just the 20s. It's it's the industrialization leading up to the 20s. But that here were these women who were absorbing pop culture. They were, you know, there's there's cinema. There's there's so much ahead of them. And then they start to get sick. And then they put together the pieces of what's going on. And then they are faced with a legal system that does not support them and a company that does not support even the truth of what they're saying. You know, there's so much denial and distortion and and kind of deliberate misinformation that's happening. But even within the legal system, and you have the statute of limitations in and they're in New Jersey. And, you know, this is something where they are getting sick years after the initial exposure and the primary exposure. And they're faced with this conundrum of being bankrupted by medical bills and dying before the cases even reach the court sometimes and a system that's really failing them. And, and how do you stand up to that? And, and so that was the question of the film. Yeah. And, and actually the mechanism of their exposure is, is interesting and different. Usually when we think of occupational exposures, we are breathing the air that may have air quality issues. If you work around asbestos, you would contract asbestos particles in your lungs and 15 or 20 years later, you would get sick. If you're working in the textile industry, you could get other types of lung diseases by breathing the air and chemicals, uh, et cetera. Tell us what the radium girls were actually doing and how they were exposed, because that, uh, even to, to the ordinary layman, it's a fascinating story, a sad story, but a fascinating story. They were lip pointing, which means that they were after each brush stroke, they were putting the brush in their mouth and pointing it straight. So they were ingesting the radium paint in addition to being surrounded with with the dust, because that that and that actually is is a complication that, you know, we don't really go into in the, in the film in detail and happens later. But once the company say, fine, fine, we'll stop lip pointing and the women continue to get sick and they say, oh, but we stopped lip pointing. There's there is no more harm. And that's when, you know, the, the particle, the particle matter in the air becomes an issue. Let me understand. So they were using these very, very fine paintbrushes, probably um, not unlike what maybe some people would put on their eyeliner with. It's a very, very small brush tip that we'd have to moisten after each stroke by putting it in your lips and licking it. The paint that was going on the dials that glowed, the chemical that made it glow was radium. Yeah, it was radioactive. It was radioactive. Ra- they were no, yeah. eating radioactive paint, basically. So when they started to get sick, what did it look like? Well, it looked like sometimes it would start with a toothache, with losing teeth, with dental problems, anemia. As it progressed, necrosis of the jaw. One dentist wrote about how he went to to remove a tooth from a radium girl and part of her jaw came out with it. You know, but it didn't it didn't necessarily look the same in in every worker. And again, that was one of the ways that the company pushed back against the accusation that it was harmful because they said if it was harmful, it would look the same in everybody. Right. One of the chilling points in the movie, and there are many of them, is is at the very, very end where the the written words that if you put a Geiger counter over the graves of these girls that it would still be ticking. And it's just such a visceral reaction to, to the idea of thinking about that, that their bones still have it in them. How did it affect you when you were going through the process of making this film? How, how Emotionally, how did, it, how did it resonate with you, the storyline? Must have been hard. 
Well, you know, I think especially working on it over so many years, I feel like I had my own coming of age as a filmmaker and a storyteller and a, a person who's interested in history and and the legal system and the history of the legal system, which is something that kind of came into sharper focus the more we worked on the film. But, you know, I, you know, in the film, it's a, it's a story of two sisters, the adaptation that we did of the history and, and the younger sister has this real awakening. You know, she wants to be an actress. She wants to have this glamorous life. And, and then her sister gets sick and she fights for her sister. And then she also has to come to terms with the fact that it's a really big fight. And then it's not just this fight. Right? There are other chemicals and, and there are people in the film who talk to her about that. It's not just the radium factory, right? It's, it's, there's the mercury and the phosphorus and the asbestos. And, and so it's really her coming into understanding of where she can play a role within, within that world. And I feel like that was, that was an experience that I had too, of there are so many stories to tell. There are so many stories of injustice to tell. And, and then also of the way people do pretty extraordinary things in the face of that. And and I learned a lot, both from the process of making the film and also from getting to know the the Radium Girls and their advocates. And of course, you know, Hollywood had a fascination with this general topic. We've seen over the last 20 or 30 years, films like Silkwood or Aaron Brockovich or Civil Action, where there is a group of people getting sick and then there is a uh, a product or a, a manufacturing plant or a facility in which dangerous products are being used and connecting those two and seeking economic redress is a David and Goliath story. Sometimes it doesn't have a happy ending. So tell us, from a legal perspective, once it became obvious or as close to obvious as it could be that the people that were tipping their paintbrushes with radium were getting diseases of the jar and the teeth and, and of the body. What was the process? We didn't have workers' comp back in the 20s that covered occupational diseases. You had to resort, I guess, to the court system. So where did these sisters and their co-workers find themselves legally? They went to court. It took them a long time to find a lawyer. That was certainly something that we grappled with in writing the screenplay and then and then in editing the film is is how do you convey the passage of so much time that was this the delaying the court case was a, a very deliberate strategy by the radium company that i think you know is no secret that that continues to be a strategy <laughs> you know they were counting on the women dying before some of them got to court so there were also many settlements made directly from the company to some of the workers ahead of the trial in which, you know, I think sort of the equivalent of an NDA was employed. So that'd be a non-disclosure agreement. Yeah. And and so there's actually there's a, a, a radium dial factory in Connecticut the same time as the New Jersey factory. And in New Jersey, the Consumers League, the New Jersey chapter of the Consumers League was very active and they became very active in the Radium Girls case and advocating for the women and finding public support and journalists to write about them and and really marshalling this community behind them of trained and practiced activists, especially when it came to workers' safety. In Connecticut, that that structure wasn't there in the same way. And many of the, the Connecticut cases were settled quietly 
with some intermediaries who actually show up in the New Jersey case as well, but they're not successful in silencing the, the women in New Jersey in the same way. How many, how many radium uh, factories or watchmaking factories were there? You know, I, there were many. I don't have an exact number. There was, there were a big one in Illinois, Connecticut, New Jersey, I believe Georgia. It was, you know, it was a popular consumer good that, that came out of the wartime manufacturing. And this, this was primarily wristwatches or did it have um, um, uh, another non-consumer use for bigger clocks and things like that that would glow in the dark? I, I believe it was primarily wristwatches, but, you know, it came out of the the reason that it's connected to the First World War is that the radium paint, the glow, the world's first glow-in-the-dark paint was discovered, invented right before the First World War. And so it was used on the wristwatches that were issued to the soldiers so they could see what time of night it was. And then it was also used on the instrument pan- panels in the first warplanes. What, if you, if you know, if this came out of your research, what did the employers that utilized radium-based paint know about the health hazards associated with radium? I mean, we used to go and have our feet, if you're old enough than I am, you remember going to a shoe store and having your, your feet x-rayed and there were some concerns about the exposure to x-rays would cause some harm. So how, how knowledgeable were the watch manufacturers about the hazards of radium paint? I think it's complicated. I think, I mean, that's the thing is, and, and we, we try and show this in the film, is that radium, when it was discovered and radioactivity at the time in the 20s, in many ways was considered to be a miracle elixir, a miracle cure. It had been shown that it could treat cancer, some forms of cancer. There were many consumer products that featured radium, whether or not they actually had radium in them is another question, but they said they did of face creams and toothpaste and chocolate and things that were most, you know, supposed to water and water and the radium water um, did have radium and it, and it was very expensive. And, you know, there's one case in which a, a very wealthy man died, got sick from drinking the water. And his lawsuit is a, a fascinating parallel to the radium girls trial because it was happening at the same time and it could not have have gone more differently. You know, you had a company in there saying, it's our fault, we're so sorry. What can we do? (laughs) Which is not what happened with the girls. Why don't we take a quick break right now to hear from our sponsor, and we will be right back with our special guest, Ginny Moeller. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PI Now understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. And we're back. Uh, Ginny, your film, it was meant to be a depiction of what really happened to these girls in, I guess, the 20s, right? The jazz, the jazz age. Yeah. The costumes were right on the mark. I mean, the setting and the scenery and the acting and the way they the actors talked uh, was all just incredibly right in the mark. So wonderful job, especially since this was really your first big film, right? Yes, this was my first feature. Yeah, it was it was fabulous. And the the one thing that I thought really stood out too was the archival footage you put into the film. Where did you find it? 
what sense did you want to uh, get from from the audience watching and 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 seeing it? It's sort of interspliced with the live action. Yeah. So you know, my background is in archival research. Like as as I mentioned, I stumbled across the Radium Girl story while doing research for this documentary on the Manhattan Project pretty early in my career. Um, a couple years after I graduated from film school, and as we were writing the screenplay, the archival was always in our mind as a way to fold in the reality of, of the time. You know, there's, there's incredible footage from that time, first of all. And I think to really drive home the point of this happened and it happened in the context of a wider world. So in some of the archival, you see protests and you see, you know, the, the, the minutia, you see people getting ice at the market and, and then, you know, on a um, more practical level, this is a very low budget period piece. And how do you create that sense of scope and the wider world with, you know, limited resources and wanting to really focus our resources on, you know, the, the scenes and the, the set and the world of the, the most immediate world of the film. So it, it was something there. Yeah. And that really brings it back to the viewer watching it in today's world, in today's landscape, and that it came out last year during the tumultuous year we all were experiencing and still are, and how the story of what they were dealing with back then in terms of the power and control, uh, and like my father said, David versus Goliath, still happening today. And one of the characters later in the film, when uh, I think it was uh, it was Joe's sister, Bessie? Yeah. Yeah, she, she, she was shaking her head about the settlement discussions, and uh, I want this to stop. And the woman, I think the Consumer League lady says it never ends. And that isn't that true? I mean, this sort of we're playing the same arguments over and over again throughout history. Yeah, to me, that's that's a really special moment in the film when our protagonist is is I mean, I guess this is a big spoiler, but also it's it's history. So I don't know how much you can spoil it. But, you know, she's she's devastated. She wanted to change the whole system and they changed a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And that was something for me as a, a writer that we really reckoned with. Of, and I think this connects back to the question of, of the David and Goliath films and the Aaron Brockovich, you know, m- movies of, as the writer, like, I wanted to give her that ending. You know, I wanted her to have changed the system forever, to have changed the laws. And, you know, suddenly all toxins are out of all workplaces, which, you know, obviously they still aren't. Radium was used until the 1970s, it was. I read about. It was. You know, and so back to the question of, of it never ends. For me, it was really amazing to find this moment with Bessie at the end of the film where she says, so this is how it ends to the activist who's been supporting them. And the activist says, you know, She's, I'll, I'll quote her verbatim. <laughs> <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> she says, can I tell you a secret that I learned a long time ago? It never ends, which might sound, you know, pessimistic on the surface. But in that moment for Bessie, it's, it's saying this is not the only fight you will ever get to fight. Yeah, it was a lesson. It wasn't, it wasn't just a, a very, very damning word. It was just like a teaching moment for her. And she grew up there. And you could see the arc of her growth come to fruition in that, in that scene, which I thought was really well done. That scene is a complicated one and really meaningful because it's the moment of victory and also the moment of, of like profound disappointment. And for some characters, it's, 
it's victory. And, um, right. and so holding both of those in that, in that moment. And then of course, later you learn that the architect of the settlement is oh, connected the to the radium company. Yeah. That was a big surprise. And I know we represent injured workers. That's what our practice is. A lot of our listeners are attorneys for injured workers in, in the United States. And a lot of times they want their day in court. They want to be heard. They want the judge to know what harm they've suffered because they're casualties of injury, right? But sometimes the lawyers get together and say, this settlement is in your best interest. And settlements aren't always that uh, glamorous moment of, of justice, right? Settlements hit you in the gut and two people paying more or, or accepting less than, than what they feel they're entitled to and deserve. That's, that is part of the law as well. And it's, it's, it's mitigating risk. The uncertainty of where litigation will go and what a, a bad decision will do to other people following. You know, when, when I first heard the story of Radium Girls, I, I, I immediately thought of two events, uh, one of which is the story of, again, mostly young girls, although not exclusively young girls, but at the Triangle Shirtwaist factory in New York City, who perished, I think, about 147 or so in a, in a tragic fire. And this was in 1911. At that time, there were no workers' comp laws. There were no real occupational safety protocols in any event. And that was a watershed moment in both labor relations, safety, as well as a redress for injuries occurring in the workplace. And it still took acts of Congress and acts of the legislature and acts of the Supreme Courts in, in, in the United States and various states to compensate people who are hurt that way. The other thing that I thought of, and again, Judd and I practice in Salem, Massachusetts. Salem is known, obviously, as a maritime port city, has a witch history uh, in terms of uh, our country's history. But back in the, when you speak of the Manhattan Project, in the late 30s and early 40s, we had, and up until probably in the 80s, we had a fluorescent light manufacturing plant, the Sylvania Electric Company. And both here and General Electric in Lynn manufactured fluorescent bulbs and back in the 30s and 40s, before the Manhattan Project, where they needed chemicals and beryllium for the atomic bomb, they used beryllium powder to coat the inside of the clear glass to make it frosty. So for these fluorescent lights, unbeknownst to them, this beryllium would be breathed by the workers or even the workers' spouses who wash their clothes and would inhale the powder. And because it had a similar and I, I did not do well in chemistry in high school, but it had a similar radioact radioactivity component, hence the Manhattan Project, these people got sick. And until they were able to diagnose it as beryllium poisoning, they called it sarcoidosis or sarcoid disease. And in fact, they, they started calling it Salem sarcoid because there was a cluster here in Salem. And it, it really took an investigation to link the fact that most, if not all of the people sick, had a connection to the Sylvania plant. So I see a parallel there with these these girls licking the tips of their brushes day after day, year after year, and getting sick, culminating in the story. It makes me think about what you what you asked a little while ago of how much did the company know at the time, especially when things like long term studies, like to what extent could they have known? The thing is, is that yes, radium was considered this sort of miracle substance. But there was research that showed the danger. But the research that was front and center in the public's eye 
one of one of the publications was just called radium exclamation point and it and it was research about radium paid for by the radium companies and so a big thing that this project has taught me is is especially when it comes to i mean really really anything but especially when you're talking about wor- workplace safety is like who is funding the research who is doing the research even the radium company in the 20s had a scientist who was basically on the payroll creating studies for them that they could point to to say look it's safe at least to to you know balance out the studies that said this really isn't safe and because it was because it was so new uh, people didn't know what to believe of course we've seen that in the tobacco litigation and and everywhere uh, that there is this uh, blending of expertise but the question is how independent or how impartial are the scientists who are are uh, doing these studies I know Judd, Judd, when Judd and I were talking about this, uh, we talked about the victimization of, of young women and girls. There was an effort, was there not, to blame their illnesses on something other than radium. And it sort of struck me as perhaps emblematic of the way uh, women or young girls might have been treated by society. Tell us uh, some of the, the defenses medically of, of what the employer was offering as an alternative reason why these girls were getting sick. One of the reasons was syphilis that they put forward, which, you know, is <laughs> 1920s version of, of slut shaming and a diagnosis that, yeah, the scarlet letter, it's, which is, you know, the previous century. So I think this has been going on for a really long time. Attempts to discredit women and, and to use social pressure of shame against them and prevent them from speaking out. And that did. There were. They did not want to be associated and have their their morality or their health being blamed on uh, sexually transmitted diseases, as opposed to you know this radium they were ingesting every day. Yeah, and you know, there's documentation that the radium company in New Jersey was having the women followed to see if they could dig up anything to discredit them, essentially, which still happens. You know, we still we're still reading about tactics like that to discredit not just sources, but women. Yeah. And I think one of the beautiful things that brings us to today's moment is the young and the youth activists. And a lot of them are female and a lot of them are not uh, accepting these constant, constant barrage of, you know, male focused, white male dominating society. And that is the essence of these girls. They were fighting for change. And that really gives the viewer some optimism and some hope in an otherwise very, very sad story, right? I mean, you have to think about what would <laughs> what would Bessie be like on TikTok, right? What would she be like <laughs> on Twitter? You know, I think she'd have a lot to say. And I think I think that they're not so different. And I, I think it's pretty cool that a lot of young people today are really carrying that um, spirit, whether or not they know it because so many of these stories have been buried, right? I didn't know that there were teenage activists who were up against this type of power structure in the 20s. I I had no idea. Mm -hmm. And of course, to put a further Dickensian element to this, these girls were, I think, paid piecework. So the more the more tips they licked and the more paint they applied, the more, what they get, a penny a dial? I mean, it was some, you read it, and it, it's in today's world, it just is so abhorrent to um, just basic wage fairness. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, it was one of the reasons that as a screenwriter reading their story, it was 
it was like reading a Greek tragedy. You know, they're they're painting a substance that glows and yet it's making their bones rot. The sort of the light versus the dark and and then the various sort of twists and turns of, of the people who are on the company's side and the way that they betray them or try not to. So and I and I do think I think the 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 sort of tragic irony of the the better you did at your job, the more sick you got. Sick you got is yeah. is really twisted and <laughs> tragic. As a lawyer, I enjoyed Doris's line around 46 minutes in. She wrote, she said, in a past life, I was a lawyer, but there was just so much shouting. (laughs) (laughs) And someone who is an amateur actor with a voice and a booming voice, like my father, like me, I can really relate to that line. So you got the lawyer line absolutely right on, Ginny. Thank you. Well, I come from a family of lawyers, so... (laughs) There's not so I'm much sorry. shouting, but <laughs> but um, but I yeah I love that moment for Doris because she one of the other characters is well they're talking about how they need a lawyer and and how they can't find one and and they're looking and and Doris just pipes up and so tell tell us a little bit about the film before we wrap up it's on Netflix is it an indie film has it been in festivals you're looking for other venues for for release. Just kind of give us an idea of what what to expect as we tune in and watch this film. Yes. So we premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival. We are currently available on iTunes and Amazon for purchase or rental. And um, we're streaming on Netflix. So um, it's an independent film. It um, stars Joey King and Abby Quinn, who are just incredible actors. I think we're going to see a lot more from them in the coming years. They're so good. They're so good, and they're just, they're wonderful as as sisters. And the film's executive produced by Lily Tomlin and Jane Wagner, among others. So it was really a, a group of really incredible women to work with and and bring the story to life with. And I I hope you enjoy it. Well, I'll never forget when I brought it to the lawyers. Um, I was so proud of this little community group and this play. I thought I thought it resonated so much with what we do, and I brought it to this dinner around 2013. It was a group of judges and lawyers from both sides, defense and employee counsel. And they did like an entire act. They took like over an hour of this dinner. And I just remember some of the defense lawyers just like putting their heads down or going out to get like a a cocktail, you know, maybe not making it back (laughs) because they felt kind of blamed. Like, oh my God, we're, uh, we're part of this, uh, nasty, uh, this nasty business, but really, I mean, it, you, you, it's a dichotomy, but you really do need good representation on both sides because, uh, you know, some claims aren't as meritorious as others. Clearly these, these claims were, I'm, I'm happy that you, you brought them to light in a fashion that, that more people can hear and, and understand it and look into it more deeply. So I thank you so much for doing that. Just a real treat to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. And me too. I echo that. And at this point, Jenny, um, I want to wish you well. I uh, hope everybody that has an interest in occupational health, in justice, in workers' comp, and in good storytelling clicks onto Netflix and watches Radium Girls. And I hope uh, that you have uh, great success. And let me tell you, in the field of workers' comp, there are a million stories like this. This is just, I wouldn't say the tip of the iceberg, but this is not unique. 
to them or the watch factories in Connecticut and New Jersey. But it, it is um, all over. And it's that balance of it trying to achieve production, but uh, at the cost of human health and safety and, and their lives. So uh, congratulate you for a, a job well done. And thank you for being a guest and to our listeners. Please tune in again and go out and make it a day that matters. Thanks and goodbye. Thanks for listening to Workers' Cop Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.